Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together to hear your word preached and proclaimed and to unpack this scripture. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for Paul and for his words to us. I thank you so much for this teaching. Lord, it is a challenging teaching to us. It is an interesting teaching to us. Father, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us, that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I was um, looking at an interesting clip from Philip Yancey, and he writes in What's So Amazing About Grace. He writes, "Humanist, humanist Benjamin Franklin rejected the graces of religion and wrote his own. And he writes this, Silence. Speak not but what may benefit others or yourself and avoid trifling conversation. And then he wrote frugality. Make no expense but do good to others or yourself. That is, waste nothing. About industry, he wrote, lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Cut out all unnecessary actions. And then he wrote about tranquility. Be not disturbed at all trifles or accidents, common or unavoidable. And he sets up a book, and he writes each virtue on a different page. He had 13 different pages, and then each week he would practice one of the virtues. And he thought that, man, if I follow this pattern, I would learn it. Now, I've also read about John Adams, and John Adams was wholly unimpressed with Benjamin Franklin. They both were in France together for a time. And... And John Adams wrote back to his wife, Abigail Adams, that he who says uh, early to bed, early to rise, rarely rises before noon, and has all these other statements about Ben Franklin. So it's always interesting to read how the founding fathers uh, saw each other. However, Benjamin Franklin in this instance was writing this book, and he would choose a virtue to work on each week. And he noted every mistake, and he would write and chart it out, and that's probably a pretty helpful practice. And he would start over every 13-week cycle to cycle through the list four times a year. And he carried this book with him, striving for a clean 13-week cycle. And he made progress, and he found himself struggling with Nettie, but he found himself struggling with yet another defect, pride. No matter how the progress came, he always struggled with pride. And he wrote this, There is perhaps no one of the natural passions So hard to subdue is pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. Truer statement has probably never been said. Well, Paul opens this section of the letter this way in 1 Corinthians 8, 1-2. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, makes us conceited, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And so here he's answering a question to the Corinthians, right? So we have these different sections of the letters, and we know that Corinthians was probably pieced together from different letters, and Paul's 
answering these questions. So we know the Corinthians were writing them questions, and he's answering these questions. And so now he's come to a new section, and he's saying now concerning whatever the question was. We don't quite have the question, but we know Paul's answer here. And so Paul here is answering this question. Now concerning the question. And so he writes, and he asks them, or he answers the question. Now the section starts in a way that's going to speak to idols, but it actually has much more to do than with just idols. And in, in, that, in that way, it relates to us in quite a, in, in, in interesting ways. He says that knowledge puffs up. And the word he uses here is gnosis. Gnosis. Which is where we get the word Gnostic. So if you've heard of the Gnostics, that's a, the Gnostics were people who thought that they had a special knowledge. It's a, it's a kind of a faith that comes in the second century uh, A.D., and the Gnostics thought they kind of merged all kinds of religions, and one of the religions that they threw into their vat of religions was Christianity. And the Gnostics thought that they had this special knowledge, and if you had certain key and code words, you would, you would come to these angels in the afterlife or these little guardians of, of, of roadways and pathways and doorways, and you would have these special knowledge of words, and you would say these code words, and they would let you through, Right? And so that's what the Gnostics did, the Gnosis. But here, you're not, he's not using it in that way. He's just talking about knowledge. And he says the knowledge leads to fusioi, which is translated as puffs up or conceit. And he says the knowledge that leads to fusioi, right, to conceit, don't have that. He contrasts this with agape or love. We all know this term. If you don't know this term, this is a term you need to know in Scripture, agape means unconditional love. Now, we've already talked about this in John. There's another term for love. There's a city named after it. Uh, Victoria, you're from that city, right? Philadelphia, right? So Philadelphia, which is an oxymoron, right? I'm a Washington Redskins fan. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, which has none, right? Um, so Philadelphia means brotherly love. It's a different kind of love than agape, but not always. John, the Apostle John, in the Gospel of John, uses philia interchangeably with agape. Right? So when you read about John using philia, uses it in the same way. But Paul does not. Paul uses agape to mean unconditional love. And so he says, he compares gnosis, and he says this gnosis puffs up, fusioi, and he comp- contrasts that with agape. Now, before we start, I don't want you to make the error of saying, if I have knowledge, I don't have love. This is a common mistake in Christianity. We don't need no learning. We just need love. Right? The very common error in the Christian faith. Right? And so it happened especially, too, as, as um, intellectualism led to people falling away from the faith. And that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying something very different as we're going to see. Now, he's speaking about knowledge into the context of the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church has a lot to say. It's very similar. We, when we were studying a, a Corinthian passage last year, I was showing you that the Corinthian church has, is very similar to Huntsville, right? It's a very educated church. They had a lot of engineers in that church. They had a lot of Roman freemen. So they studied philosophy. Now, they were very literate, right? And they had a lot of engineers. And so they loved and they prized education. 
And so what he's talking to, and they also had a lot of charismatics, by the way, in that church. And so uh, we're, uh, we're, we're seeing two different errors in this church. They have a lot of people who prize gnosis and they love knowledge. And then we also have a lot of people who are like really into the gifts of the Spirit. And they're prizing like all of these uh, wonderful gifts because <clears throat> they had a lot of religions, a very religious city. They had all kinds of temples, and they prized all kinds of ecstatic, experiential things. And so you kind of see both errors. But here Paul is correcting this knowledge that puffs up. You had a lot of intellectual period. And so you had a lot. The Corinthians were at war then over all kinds of various ideologies. They were in war over all kinds of various philosophies and theologies. In the Roman world, Pride was a major virtue. So unless you were a Stoic, and there was one kind of pattern, one kind of group of Romans who didn't prize pride, that was the Stoics. But aside from that, everyone in the Roman world really was into being proud. Pride was a virtue. Humility was not. If you were humble, that was not a good thing. Pride was a good thing. And so they wanted to be proud. And so when the scripture comes in and says you shouldn't be proud, the Romans looked at you like you were kind of nuts. This is a crazy teaching. And Paul's teaching you now to be humble, and knowledge builds up. And so when the Corinthians have all these teachings, and they see that Apollos, who's a very learned teacher, and Paul comes in, and Cephas comes in, they all begin to say, well, wow, I follow this teacher, and I follow that teacher, and I follow this teacher. We do that in a similar way. So 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17 talks about this. Paul, when he opens the letter, says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way... When Scripture says brothers, a lot of people are like, wow, he's only talking to men. That's the way that Greeks or Romans or most cultures would talk, and they would mean everybody in the congregation. Everybody falls into that, so I'm appealing to you, everyone. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people, right? So he's talking about the head woman in there, the Chloe's people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is Peter, or I follow Christ. I mean, imagine that. I follow Jesus. There's always one group that says, I just follow Jesus. I was at a, I was at a coffee shop uh, a few uh, years back, and I, this guy came up to me, and he, was, he, was, he looked at my collar, and he was talking to me about what I believed and all that. And he goes, yeah, we're just starting a church. And I said, yeah, well, I'm Anglican. And he was asking me about the church. And he goes, we just follow Jesus. I was like, well, that's good. I follow Jesus too. Yeah, well, what do you believe? And da, da, da. Well, here's kind of, you know, the doctrines of faith. We just follow Jesus. I was like, well, we follow Jesus too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what kind of things do you... And, and you, you always have the one guy in the crowd or the one person in the crowd that just thinks they follow Jesus, and the implication is you really aren't because you have other teachings. But everyone's really following Jesus in the church. <clears throat> and so you've got that one person, right? But everyone else is saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos and I follow Peter. And what they're saying is this theological vein. So I follow Luther, I follow Cramner, I follow what else? And Paul's trying to say, look, we're all believers, right? We're all believers, we may know that one particular theologian is the best, we might think, go team. But Paul is saying something else. Look, and that's what Paul is trying to point out. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. 
Do you really think that Peter and Apollos and Paul were going to disagree with one another? All of them would be shocked to find out that somebody's following one and not the other. And these things can happen when the church is not under persecution. We have time to divide and to think about these things. So they were enthralled with their education, their philosophy, and in that they were like many of us. They were not unlike many Christians in our day, especially in the Reformed and the Evangelical camps who crave knowledge. Look, I'm in these camps. I'm Reformed, I'm Evangelical, and so I know what I'm talking about. The Corinthians were unique in that they had the excesses of both the Charismatic camp and the Evangelical camp, so they were fighting about everything, and so we have Paul's warnings to both group groups. Excuse me. But here Paul warns about the seeking of knowledge versus unconditional love. And he says that the one without the other leads to a warped faith. Now what does he mean by that? How can one without the other lead to a warped faith? Well, when I was in seminary, one of my favorite professors, Dr. Payne, I always loved him, uh, led, he had one of his glasses pulling down lectures. And you know the glasses pulling down lectures. I don't know if any of you had one of those professors or teachers. It's when they're teaching and teaching and teaching and they do this. And Dr. Payne would do this every so often. And if you were an experienced uh, minister, like I had been a youth minister for a while, and I, we had at the, our seminary a lot of people who were just out of uh, college, and so they hadn't seen this. And all of the guys who were experienced at RTS loved the glasses pulling down lecture. Because we would roll laughing, we would usually sit in the back, and we would roll laughing as we watched all the shock and horror of all the students because they had never seen or heard such words come out of a professor's mouth, and we would just roll. Anyway, so one of the things he said, and he pulls down his glasses, and he said, you know what's wrong with you gentlemen, is how he would always start this part, and we would be like, <laughs> okay. And he said, you know what's wrong with you gentlemen? He said, most of you are in this class to be pastors and to train to be pastors. And you have never shared your faith. This was a class on missions and evangelism. And you have never shared your faith with a single solitary soul. Now, most of the time I laughed, but this time I was offended. I was like, that's ridiculous, Dr. Payne. How in the world? Because in the Anglican church, we had to be tested, or the Episcopal church, we had to be tested before we got in. And now, I came from a conservative diocese, so they sent me to a good evangelical school. Anyway, uh, and so by that time in my life, I had literally shared my faith. I'd stopped counting, but I was somewhere at a thousand from counting. And so um, it was just a part of me, a part of my DNA. And I hadn't, I couldn't even imagine that this was true. And so I was like, that's ridiculous. And I went and began, and, and the guys in the back, had, they were like in athletes for action, or they had been in different missions groups, and they thought that was ridiculous too. But as I began to talk to my fellow students that were out of different groups, I began to find that that was true. And I was astonished. And so what these gentlemen had was a lot of head knowledge, but they had no actual experience. They had no life knowledge. They had no actual practice. And that's what Dr. Payne was calling them out. So part of unconditional love, or agape, is putting your faith into action. Faith is meant to be lived in community. All of the epistles, by the way, when it says you, Paul is a good southerner. 
U is poorly translated in the epistles. It should be translated in Philadelphia as U skies, and it should, or in New Jersey, where's my wife, U skies, and it should be translated in Southern as y'all. So it should be U skies or y'all. It shouldn't be you. In English, in proper English, we don't really have a perfect, it should be you all, right? But it's not really proper. In the South and in the North, it should be you skies or y'all. And that's a better way to say it. And that's really what Paul is saying. He's saying one or the other. It's a plural. He's writing to a community. And Christianity is meant to be lived in community. In fact, some of the, the early church used to say, without the church there is no salvation. And what they meant by that is if you're not living it in community, you're not living out your faith. Agape requires living it in community. And if you're not living out your faith in the church and in the world, you don't really have a true understanding of it. And in the Reformed or the Evangelical world, it's super tempting to be a bookworm who does nothing with your faith. I run into it all the time. Often these folks will discuss all the latest teachings. They'll know every jot and tittle of all sorts of theologians. Look, seminary folks I've read or I've been with, and when I was at seminary, there was a certain group that would know every jot and tittle of the latest theological Um, writing. They'll know the journals. They'll know all kinds of authors. They'll have read them. They'll discuss them. They'll debate with me. They'll know everything. But when I would talk to them about actual practicalities of the faith, like when we got out, what church are you led to? Where's the Lord leading you? They would give me glassy-eyed stares because the Lord had never led them in prayer. Or they would give me glassy-eyed stares about evangelism, or they had never actually gone out and done service projects, or they had never actually gone out and worked among people. And the same thing might happen among laity. I'll run into folks, too, who have read every latest book, and they'll, they'll get to astonishing levels of knowledge about the faith, but they won't actually practice the faith. It's a gnosis that leads to fusioi, Right? A knowledge that can lead to conceit because you know all these things. And and when you get to that, you get to what's called this fat little baby syndrome that Amy Grant used to sing about. Love that song, You're Just Little Fat Little Baby. I don't know if you remember Amy Grant. Yes. And you know that song? You're just a fat little baby, right? And you just sing this song, fat little baby, fat little baby, right? You're just a flat little baby. You cry, wah, 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 and you don't sing baby. And what the whole thing, and I heard her explain that, is when you just, a baby who just eats and eats and eats and eats and eats and never does anything, if it never moved, if it never tried to walk, if it never tried to do anything, would eventually die. Because babies are meant to crawl and to walk and to move and to do things. That's what babies are meant to do. We as Christians are meant to put our faith into action. We are meant to move and to crawl and to walk. And as Christians, if we don't, then we begin to get cynical. We begin to look for the next thing. In the charismatic circles, it happens too. We begin to look for the next experience because we don't put our faith into action. And so if you're not leading Bible studies, eventually when you get that knowledge, if you're not leading Bible studies, if you're not discipling people, if you're not out there doing service projects, if you're not out there doing missions, if you're not actually putting that faith into practice, then this cynicism begins to set in. You begin to judge teachings. You begin to, you know, all this kind of stuff happens because you're not actually doing it. You should be stumbling into church desiring, like, like my teacher used to say, Sunday's coming, Sunday's coming. You should be desiring church because you need to be filled because you've emptied yourself during the week. Are you living that way? 
If you're not emptying yourself during the week, then you're not giving of yourself. And that's the way that we're called to live, and that's kind of the agape lifestyle. If it becomes a mental exercise, then you get and can get into fusioi. You must be impressed with what I know. And everyone who doesn't know it becomes lesser than me. The brain says to the hand or the toe or the eye, we rock, you don't really matter. <clears throat> so this practically expresses this self, and this is what Paul shows us in the example of the idols. The other gods don't exist now. That's what Paul's saying. It's not a popular teaching in our pluralist society, I know, but Allah is a false god, and as are the Hindu gods. And if there's any power at all behind them, that power lies in Satan and the demonic. Now again, this is not my teaching. If you're offended by this, then you're offended with what God says, not me. Believe it or reject it at your own peril, and I'll read you this. So this isn't Je- these aren't Jeff's words. These are Paul's words. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. See, Paul, look at that. He's just, uh, that's just bad, Paul, right? And there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So we know that these things aren't real. That's what Paul is saying. And knowledgeable Christians then can eat at feasts where food is sacrificed to idols. <clears throat> right? We don't care. Like, I don't care if this meat was sacrificed to Zeus. I don't care if this meat was sacrificed to Hermes or Aphrodite. These things don't matter to me. Now, it might be another thing if I'm actually eating at the feast where they're sacrificing it, right? Now, now I'm participating in the worship. That's a different thing. But if the meat was like sold at a bazaar and now I'm eating it, I don't really care about that. But if I'm at a table where somebody has come out of just Zeus worship, and this is like hurting that person, then that person may be offended. And now I'm at a situation And that's what Paul's talking about, where that person is really getting hurt. And then comes this setting into my brain. Well, you know what, Johnny or Susie? You shouldn't be offended by this, because theologically speaking, I heard the latest teaching by Paul, who said, and the latest teaching by uh, John Piper actually teaches us uh, in uh, his latest book, uh, the dude who wrote the thing, a thing, a majiggy, on page thing, the uh, fancy theological word that is 25 cent when I could have just said it in other ways. But I'm going to use the 25 cent word because that makes me look so much more sophisticated and actually theologically knowledgeable. And then this word goes into the other word, which says the other fancy theological word. And then you do this thing, right? And you look very sophisticated and knowledgeable. And now you have shared this knowledge, but the person there, their conscience is still broken. And that's what Paul's talking about. Now, have you done that person a favor? Your knowledge is helping them. Or you have a flippant attitude. (laughs) You don't know what you're talking about, little Christian. And you just do your thing. Either way, it comes out in the fancy knowledge, belittling, or it comes out in the flippant attitude. You've seen Christians who do that. Ah, whatever. Right? Now, what do we do in this situation? 1 Corinthians 8, 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as, as, as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. 
they think this food is really being offered at the time. And they're like, wait a minute, I can't do this because this is really being offered to another God. And what are you doing? So, what do we do with this? The, probably the most popular example, because we don't actually eat food offered to idols in our day, is what are Christians called to do when we're sitting at a table or in a, in a, at a restaurant and there's alcohol and there's a Baptist or a Church of Christ person sitting there? What are we to do when we are the person who drinks alcohol? What do we do with our weaker brother or sister who is the Baptist or the Church of Christ person? Right? That's how we think if we're the alcohol drinking person. Should we drink or not drink? Right? That's how we think when we are the alcohol person. We should not cause them to stumble or we should be bold and drink and and do what we want. Now, Here's the thing. The teetotaler, which is a person who doesn't believe in drinking, the teetotaler, the Baptist or Church of Christ person, doesn't necessarily think that they're the weaker brother or sister in Christ. They think that you're the weaker brother or sister in Christ. And so they have the same debate. What should we do with our weaker brother or sister in Christ who still believes in drinking alcohol and doesn't know it's a sin? And so you have both debates, because I've heard it from both sides, and they're thinking, wow, we should tell them not to drink because we don't want them to fall in sin. And so you have this debate where both sides of the, of, of the table are now thinking the other side is the weaker brother or sister in Christ. And so how do we deal with this debate? Which side are you on? Which side is correct? See, this debate is a good example of the gnosis of which Paul is speaking. Both sides are wrong here. And I, again, speak from knowledge. I have been guilty of the gnosis, which leads to fusioi, conceited knowledge. You see, neither side is the weaker brother or sister in this case. Both sides are puffed up. Both are arrogant. Both are arrogantly judging the other as weaker. One will sacrifice drinking for the teetotalers who are using their gnosis arrogantly to push their viewpoints, And the fact that we all rush to judge ourselves as the stronger in the example shows us how fusio or puffed up we are. If we all actually knew our Bibles, and particularly Corinthians, we would know passages such as this, which we all ignore. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom that is God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let no one who boasts, boast, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So what are you doing, Paul says? You are bragging in the wrong things. Compared to God, you are nothing. You're like ponds. You're like, sorry. You're like snails in a pond arguing who's the prettiest. Right? That's what he's saying. You weren't chosen by God because you were awesome. 
Some of you did have noble birth. Some of you were gifted with ability, but you're in grave error if you think those things give you a leg up with the Lord. And this is what many of us do when we have those things. We think, well, I have that thing, therefore I'm superior to you, right? And this fusioi causes us to jump up assuming that we're the stronger because we think that it's superior to be stronger and we want to help the weaker. That's where we make the mistake. It is not superior to be the stronger. Not in God's economy. We just read it. It's superior to be the weaker. We need to realize that we're all weak. Our arrogance is going to be destroyed by God. When we function in gnosis leading to fusioi, we're not functioning in agape. Agape doesn't fear weakness. Do you fear weakness? I do. Agape recognizes weakness in our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it does not see it as bad. It doesn't see it as a point of pride that we're stronger. It doesn't sit at the table and judge the other brother or sister as weaker. It simply sees that they're struggling with X, and it says, okay, then I won't do it. It doesn't actually judge them as weaker. It just says, person A is struggling with X. I won't do it. I don't want them to struggle with X. Why not? Because I struggle with Y. I've struggled with Z. I wouldn't want to have them. I understand what it's like to struggle. I've been there. I, too, am a failure at all these things. In fact, I want to share how I've struggled with this and just help them along because I, too, am a weak sinner. And I'm open with them, and I share. That's agape, and that's what Paul is saying. This is how we, as Christians, are called to function with our brothers and sisters. This is how we live in community. This is how we live in love. And when we have the courage to share ourselves with them and to minister to them, we know that there is courage then in people sharing their weakness with us. We know that we need to have the courage then to share with others. We'll finish with this. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Paul says it this way. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that this weakness I have should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in strength, and so brag about it to every single person you see. I want you to show how smart you are to everyone. Please use 25-cent words everywhere you go. Please brag about your knowledge. And Oh, I'm sorry, that was my thought. It's not what he says. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in what? Read it. Say it again. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my... Read it loud. Say it louder. Good job. You did it well. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Boast of your weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my what? Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am, then I am strong. Amen.